On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The graphic novel, New Kid, it's largely autobiographical about an African-American kid who attends a predominantly white high school. Among other things, he deals with various microaggressions. In other words, it's not clan rallies or violence. Uh, white kids want to touch his hair. White mothers want to be sure it's okay if they serve watermelon at the birthday party. Uh, a white kid calls him an Oreo, that kind of thing. Now, I hadn't heard of this book before, but I heard of it uh, this week because of the podcast, This American Life, which included an interview with a mother who was determined to get this book banned. And she wanted it banned because of passages like I just cited. She thought it was totally inappropriate for her kids to read a book that would make them feel guilty for being white. Make them, that would make them feel like they had to compensate for the racism of the past. Now, I found this rather silly. But then I remembered years ago, my two girls were coloring at the kitchen table while I did dishes and streamed documentary about the South African rugby team at the end of apartheid. Uh, that the same story that got turned into Invictus with Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. Anyway, and, and previous to that, I was, I think, I was listening, I had been watching a documentary on the uh, 68 Olympics and the whole black power movement. Anyway, and at one point, my, my eight-year-old Arden piped up and said, Dad, sometimes I feel guilty for my white skin. She said, it was such derision. And, and it's okay. It, it, it can happen that kids will feel guilty when they hear about the history of racism. But I wonder what this mother fears the end result of that will be. What would it mean for her kids to feel the need to compensate for their whiteness? I mean, I suppose if we 
peel back the layers of concern at the core is a concern over uh, scarcity. There is only so much that go, can, you know, to go around. Every resource is a limited resource. And so if you can get yours, get yours. Go on out and get it, right? Uh, get it before someone else does. And given this scarcity, the purpose of education is to help kids acquire the knowledge and develop the skills needed to go on out and get, go on out and get it. The last thing a school should teach is to teach you to apologize for getting it or make you feel like you need to allow others to take it from you, to sell yourself short. Well, our gospel reading this morning is set at a wedding feast. And if the purpose of education is to equip you for scarcity, the purpose of a wedding is to provide you with a sense of abundance. There's no shortage of love or beauty or happiness or dance songs. And, you know, some of you may recall the movie Wedding Crashers. I mean, the premise of the movie is two cynical divorce lawyers spend their summer weekends crashing weddings and taking advantage of women all swept up in that abundance. And of course, a great way to foster that sense of abundance is alcohol, right? An abundance of alcohol can compensate for a scarcity of love and beauty and happiness. If you don't feel the love, see the beauty, or bubble over with happiness, drink up until you do, right? Until you love, you love everybody. Uh, that's, that's the trick. But that brings us back to our passage. The wedding has a problem. Scarcity. They are out of wine. And word of this gets out. At least it gets out to Mary. Mary looks around the hall, sees Jesus over there, the disciples on the dance floor, slide to the left, slide to the right. He's just about to cha-cha real smooth, and she pulls him aside. That song has been around since the first century. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the Gospels do not provide much information about Jesus' family life. This is one of the rare moments we get to witness him interacting with his mother. And I know Catholics can take Mariology a little overboard, making claims about her that reflect sort of medieval logic more than the, they do the evidence of Scripture. But she's fascinating, right? I mean, you know how, like, with toddlers, when, they'll, when they, like, topple off something or pull something down on their head, and the, the bonks them on the head, and you're like, oh boy, this is gonna smart. But they don't know that yet, right? They get hit and they're still processing what just happened. It's like, wait a sec, something's off. Uh, and, it, and sometimes it, it takes long. You can scoop them up and have them in your arms before they just start bursting into tears. Well, imagine doing that for the second person of the Trinity, right? I mean, you know, I mean, where is that person, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that the toddler that bopped himself in the head with a, with, a, with a bowl was present at the dawn of creation? But that is who Jesus is to her. It's her boy. 
I mean, we don't have to adopt the view that she's somehow the queen of heaven to recognize that her relationship to Jesus is unlike everyone else's. She raised him. Had she not, had she somehow put that responsibility off on, you know, some nice family up the road, he would not have been the same person. I mean, he still, I mean, he still could have managed to accomplish all that he was sent to do. He still might have performed miracles, preached the gospel, endured suffering and death, uh, you know, resurrected and ascended to heaven. He would, but he'd be different somehow. To suggest otherwise strikes me as a denial of what it means to be human. No one on earth becomes who they are completely independent of their upbringing. I don't know why we would assume Jesus would be any different, right? For a different mother, Jesus would be have different somehow. She has an internal, eternal impact. All that is all that's to say, it is impossible not to want to read into an exchange between these two to try to get some insight. What, what's it like? But reading it and reading what various scholars have read into it, um, I mean, it's a wide range. And it reminds me of a conversation between John and Paul, not the apostles, the Beatles, in that seven-hour documentary, Get Back. There's one scene where they're, they're getting lunch, they're eating lunch, and they're talking about the fact that George Harrison has left the band, and they're unaware of the fact that, that they're being recorded. And so when that comes out, I'm like, oh, wow, we are going to get real insight here. And, you know, I could follow the conversation mostly, but when John says something like, well, you know, all that can be, and Paul responds, yeah, yeah, that's true. Paul can say that because John and Paul have had thousands of conversations. They have changed the world together over the last 10 years. You know, um, he, John doesn't need to say more. I need John to say more. I don't know what that can be, let alone what it can, how it can be, right? I don't know what that is, but they know because I'm an outsider in that conversation. Well, scholars have tried to read into this conversation between Jesus and Mary and have come to all kinds of conclusions, right? Does she really, I mean, what, does she really think Jesus can, does, has the power to address this wine situation? What does she know? Why does she, why does she know that? What does she expect him to do? Uh, and, and that actually seems to be Jesus' own question, right? He's like, hey, what's this have to do with me? And it's, one of the things is like, is he annoyed when he asks? What's interesting about the NIV is it says, dear woman. Well, no, he just says woman. And it's not like woman. And it's not rude. I mean, it's, it's not like a, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, but it's not affectionate. It's just a standard sort of greeting. But I think, I think the translators of the NIV get a little uncomfortable with that. So they're like, we'll say it's dear woman. He didn't say, dear woman, just a woman. What's this got to do with us? Anyway, what does that mean? I don't know. We don't know. This is an interaction like John and Paul's. We get a basic grasp of it. But it seems to be, it seems to be that there's a lot more behind it. But we just don't know what it is. We can't get it. We are outsiders listening in. We don't have all the history they have. 
the years of being mother and son together that informs this exchange. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that's why John includes it. Not because we'll get the full meaning of the interaction, because we won't. After all, what John tells us at the conclusion of this story is that this is the first of Jesus' signs. This is the event that sort of launches Jesus' public ministry. In other words, at the beginning of the story, Jesus is still sort of a private citizen. He belongs to his family. He is someone whose conversations are meaningful primarily to those with whom he's grown up. We are outside. We are outsiders. But Jesus is about to make a transition. He's launching his public ministry. Because here's how the passage ends. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed him. It's a move from talking with family to communicating with disciples. So now we have moved from outsiders to insiders. All who want to be disciples of Jesus, this is for us. He's talking to us now. Now just because Jesus is launching his public ministry does not mean that what he does here is just straightforward. The meaning of it is not all right there on the surface. No, it still carries all kinds of history and the weight of other conversations. The difference between this conversation conversation and this conversation is that the history and the conversations, in this one, it's the history of Israel. In this one, it's the conversations with people who have spoke on behalf of God. In other words, now it's about fulfilling the prophets. And to sort of get it, you have to be in on those conversations too. That's how we need to see what Jesus is doing here at the wedding. So, that in mind, let's first look. Okay, what is Jesus doing on the surface? What's a surface reading of uh, this, this miracle? Well, he restocks the wine supply. And not just, not with just enough to get by, he gives them enough wine to go into the wine business. Right? Six stone water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. I mean, he makes those Costco wine jugs look like something a flight attendant would give you on a, you know, on a short flight. And, and of course, it's not just a ton of wine. It's a ton of really good wine. So on the surface, what Jesus has done here is saved the hosts of this wedding from an embarrassing situation. He has enabled them to perpetuate an environment of abundance rather than require them to confront scarcity on the surface. We must bring years of conversation, years of history to what Jesus does to get the full meaning of it. We must bring the words of prophets. And when the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord, when they wanted to talk about the abundance of that day, they would talk about it in terms of wine. They would talk about it in terms of a wedding feast, a celebration. What Jesus is doing here is about all that. 
He's saying that the hope for a world beyond scarcity, a hope for life and life in abundance, is found in him, in what he's doing. That's what his ministry is about. Now, it's worth considering now what this passage says to us. How might it inform our conversations? How might it inform the, the, our own personal histories? Well, I think about it uh, in terms of that incident with my daughter Arden while watching the documentary where she felt guilty for her white skin. I don't recall how I responded. I know I didn't feel badly about it. I think I felt sort of proud of her for recognizing that her life did not exist in a vacuum. You know, that this history is, you know, our history. We carry that with us. On the other hand, I want her to be proud of who she is. I don't want her to feel like she's somehow not deserving of, of good things. I, mean, I want her to carry that history and work to change it. But again, I, I don't remember exactly what I said. And quite frankly, I'm not sure it, mattered, it, it matters all that much what I said. I wasn't going to answer what it meant to carry the history of white racism in a single conversation. Ultimately, I hope I can help her answer that question over a lifetime of conversations, over the course of our history together. I'll answer that question by how I treat her. I'll answer that question by how she sees me treat other people. All of that is my answer, whether I like it or not. All of that contributes to whether she feels like she's worth, uh, worth love, worth uh, dignity in a world full of scarcity. Are those things scarce? Or is there just enough? Or is there an abundance of love and worth? Has she recognized that even as we scramble to get ours, that there is a God who is never in short supply, a God who can turn plain old water into the best wine, a God who reveals glory, enough glory to get us into the glory business, to get to work putting fear and guilt and racism out of business, Here's how Paul puts it. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, Holy Spirit, amen.